0: Strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen, and I'm Robin. And tonight, I'm going to tell you the story of the Colorado Gold Rush and Alfred Packer. Ooh! So the other night, I was watching the TV show Gold Rush because obviously I have a weird obsession with mining lately. That guy kind of looks like Poor Man's Adam Driver. And I'm Ooh. there for it. I mean, that episode that we watched when we were in Asbury Park, it was just like... Different show even. Oh. I watch multiple mining shows. So there's more than one? <laughs> um, I watch a lot of things on Discovery Channel. Um, so I was thinking about mining, gold rushes. And then I remember a story that I had heard, or rather I had seen, in an unlikely place. Robin, hmm. do you remember 1993's Cannibal the Musical? I wanna you, say yes. You may have been too young. No, I was I was eleven. It was written by I little shop of horrors religiously. It was written by the guys from South Park, and it is loosely based on the story that I'm about to tell you. So talking to you about Cannibal the Musical tells you probably two things that I know remember things in nineteen ninety three, which tells you that I'm old. Well, you were like what, fifteen? Um, so, yeah, that's understandable if you're watching. Right. Yeah, clearly. So I get it. And too, that I'm a creep. But you probably <laughs> already knew that part. Knew that. Yeah, I mean, you're here, so you're, probably, you're probably a creep too. So Welcome. Anyway, tonight I'm going to tell you all about the Colorado Gold Rush and Alfred Packer. If you know this story, it's crazy. And if you don't know this story, get ready because it's a weird one. So we're in Colorado, mid-1800s. At this point, there are very few white settlers in the area, and the land is mostly inhabited by natives. Though there are only a few white trappers and traders roaming in the area in the 1840s, the town of Breckenridge was developed out of America's mid-19th century rush to settle the West. Mm -hmm. In 1859, the Pikes Peak gold rush was on, and discovery of gold in the Breckenridge area brought miners and fortune seekers. The Colorado Gold Rush was the second largest mining boom in the United States history. And, of course, the first was the California Gold Rush, Mm -hmm. which was about a decade earlier. Over 100,000 people participated in this rush. These folks were known as 59ers, a reference to the year 1859, which was the year that the Colorado Gold Rush peaked. At the time of the rush, Colorado was still part of Kansas and Arkansas Territory. The Gold Rush was accompanied by a dramatic influx of emigrants into the region of the Rocky Mountains that exemplified the phrase, Pike's Peak or Bust. Pike's Peak is a rather iconic and noticeable peak upon the horizon that set itself as a beacon for early prospectors to the region as they traveled westward across the Great Plains. Intent upon locating the Blue River Valley, where untold riches were said to be easily plucked from the earth, General George E. Spencer's prospecting company founded the town of Breckenridge in November of 1859, and presumably called it that after President James Buchanan's vice president, James Cable Breckenridge. By June of 1860, there was a U.S. post office, a single row of log cabins, tents, and shanties lined up along the Blue River. That summer, Breckenridge boasted several stores, hotels, and saloons and became the permanent county seat of Summit County, Colorado. But the Civil War and increasing difficulty in locating free accessible gold cleared the camp of miners. Consequently, by 1870, the population of Breckenridge had plummeted to 51. So it was a boom and then a bust. Big bust. 51. 51. 51 people. I guess somebody has to run the post office and the hotel and the saloon. So that's one guy, one guy, one guy. They probably had a wife and maybe a kid. And the saloon had multiple people. Though many thought that Breckenridge had been mined out, that did not stop one group of men from following word of a new find there. This group of men set out from Provo, Utah, and along the way met up with a guide named Alfred Packer, seeking to stake a claim in the mountains. In November of 1873, 20 men set out for the goldfields of Breckenridge upon the news of a massive strike that was discovered there. The men were largely strangers to each other and banded together to make their fortune in Colorado. A member of this original party, George Tracy claimed that the men encountered Packer some 25 miles from their starting point near Provo Packer asked where they were headed. And when he heard that they were headed to the gold country of the San Juan mountains, he said that he would like to join them. Packer was without money and also lacked adequate supplies so the men were a bit apprehensive to take him along. But Packer claimed that he was both a prospector and a guide and that he knew the San Juan territory very well. So let's take him a moment and talk about this dude Alfred. Alfred. Or Alfred. So it turns out this fine gentleman had a tattoo on his arm and his name being Alfred, but on his arm was Alfred. Perhaps a dyslexic tattoo artist. Maybe. Perhaps he himself did it and he could not read right. I do not know the or, case. Or um, he slurred his words so, when he was drunk when he got it. Right. He, you know. So when you read through, you will find Alfred and you will find Alfred. I will continue to call him Alfred because that is what I knew him as. And that just is. Call him Al. I'm just going to keep. I do call him Olal in a little bit. but Yeah. I'll just call him Al. Alfred or Alfred, depending on where you read, was born on January 21st, 1842 in Pennsylvania. His family moved to Indiana for his father's work as a cabinet maker. I guess they needed extra cabinets in Indiana. I don't really know. Is it because they have more wood available? (laughs) They need more new houses. I mean, Pennsylvania is pretty pretty woodsy. Right. I was like, isn't that like a place where people make a lot of cabinets? I'm just thinking of the Amish. It's wrong. Moving on. It was from here that Alfred's story really starts. He did not get along well with his parents as a teen, as most don't. And left home and traveled to the much sought after area, that teen runaway land of Minnesota. Wow. What a rebel. I told you he was a wild man. Nothing but excitement for old Al. Man, is that where he got his tattoo? My goodness. Probably. <laughs> my goodness. You got to stay away from those Minnesotians. He's, like, he's like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going up to Minnesota because it's way cooler there than it is here oh with my, my God, parents. i to get myself a tattoo that's spelled wrong. And- I'm going to get myself a sweet tattoo. And because I can't spell my own name. It will be spelled wrong. what's funny is that, like, life expectancy was not that high. So what is he, 13, 14 years old being like, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go. Got to get out of here. I won't be doing your book learning anymore, dad. I'm going to go over to Minnesota and be a man at age of 12. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go make a living for myself in St. Paul. Good for him now. Go. Treat yourself. Alfred, do you, baby. Do you. So also, he is an epileptic. And is said to have seizures at least three times a week. And he went by himself. Alfred, you know better. Now I completely changed my entire... <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you need someone to be by you at all times. So... Are you wearing a bracelet? <laughs> Do you have a medic alert? Do you have upset, a bracelet Alfred? on? Sorry. I guarantee you he did not. So his epilepsy makes it very difficult for him to find and keep work. Uh, he's also said to have been very lazy and confrontational. Just basically all around hard to get along with. So between that and the seizures, not like everyone's favorite. I don't blame him. I mean, he's just a problem. Anyway, so he joined the Union Army but was discharged due to his epilepsy and then quickly moved to a different area where he joined again because, you know, no computers. Mm -hmm. So he was also discharged a second time for the same reason. He then moves across the country, working in a variety of jobs, keeping none of them for very long. And eventually, he finds himself in the mining industry. So his seize- his seizures were pretty frequent then. If they were able to, be they were like- said to be every other day. But, oh, ow. So okay, that's a little bit about Alfred, also our known as our wilderness guide oh, on this poor God. on this expedition these 20 men have met up with him right outside where they started in Provo, Utah. They run across this character who, you know, he says he's a guide and they're not professional, like they're not professional prospectors. None of them know each other. So essentially they're kind of like roped into this story that he can help them. Mm-hmm. So he claims to be very familiar with the area in which that they are traveling and assures them that he knows routes that will save them time. These boasts give him a position of worth amongst the prospectors who knew very little about Colorado's geography. Unfortunately. Neither did Packer. I am getting flashbacks from the Donner Party. So this is a full hardcore flashback. So this is about 10 years after the Donner Party. Oh, my God. Just so you know. They didn't learn (laughs) the first time. So Donner Party was moving (gasps) for like better life out West. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is for that money. I mean that gold. Members of the original party stated that he vastly overstated his experience of being a seasoned guide who was familiar with the area and even possibly fabricated his qualifications altogether. He was also reported to not even have a rifle at the time that the expedition left, having only a Colt revolver with him, pretty useless for wilderness work. Throughout the course of their journey, Packer was reported as being greedy with rations. He often fought with the other gentlemen that were in the party and was just difficult to get along with. It is said that he frequently fought with Frank Miller, who was one of the guys in the party. He just had like a real beef with this guy. He was later called a whining fraud by another member. His seizures also made his presence in the group strenuous. I mean, can you imagine being on a long expedition? And just, man, just like, we're the only guy. Well, the only guy who supposedly knows where he's going has seizures every couple of days. So typically, people don't just like have a seizure and then like pop right up and say, let's, let's get back to hiking, you know? So I'm sure that this, along with his just general bad attitude, caused them to be running behind. Like, by weeks, right? I'm sure. (laughs) And with winter fast approaching, they were not making good progress towards their destination. My goodness. The winter weather was already becoming a major obstacle for them, as the wagons, horses, and assemblage were being bogged down, along with the fact that the Mormon trail that they were following was becoming heavily snowed over and largely indistinguishable, forcing the men to rely almost solely on a compass. So, and you also say he has no rifle, right? So they're out there weaponless? Well, other people in the party had rifles. That's oh good. He just didn't. So basically, he he brings nothing to the table. Nothing at all. Zero. And has a terrible attitude and is having seizures all the time and thinks that he's like big shit. We all know this guy. We've all been stuck with this guy. We all know who he is. I, f- I feel it. Yeah. You can I feel, feel your frustration. You know exactly how these guys felt about this guy. Packers' inexperience was also beginning to show itself, and the party ultimately became lost. Provisions quickly ran out, and the men were reduced to surviving for a considerable length of time on horse feed. And then, on the horses. Oh. I'm like, if they're eating horse feed, what are the horses eating? Nothing, which means that just, oh. The circle of, of life. life. But, thankfully, on January 21st, 1874, the group happened upon the camp of Chief Auri. Native chief, who was well known to assist travelers through the mountains. Though they were unsure if they would be well-received at the camp, they approached anyway. In some reports, it is said that they were so haggard that they scared the members of the camp. Yeah, it's like the dead coming to life <laughs> just walking through, you know? Yeah. yeah. Especially if now they're on foot. And yeah. they're just like... But Chief Owry greeted them warmly and welcomed them as guests. They were given food and lodging and not a minute too soon. Chief Auri recommended that they stay in the camp until spring, since they were likely to encounter further dangerous weather in the mountains. He told them that no Ute, which is the tribe that he was a member of, would attempt such a journey, and to chance it would mean almost certain death. That's like having, you know, like, you love this person, right? They're your friend. You love them. Them asking if they can sleep on your couch for, like, a couple of days, and it ends up being four months so there's 20 of them yeah and And he's one of them has seizures every other day and he's nasty and he's mean and and he's a big food grub because he's just like i'm the man i need more grub because i'm the tour guide yeah i mean he was he was always hogging the rations these guys are staying there at the camp the chief is like i wouldn't do it none of us would do it you would be dumb to try But, you know, that FOMO was kicking in, and the prospectors were (laughs) just sure that as they stayed there in the camp, that Breckenridge was being descended upon by miners from all over the country. And they couldn't miss out on the riches, and this made some of the men anxious to continue on. After a couple of weeks with Auri and his people, the party convened to discuss leaving. At this point, it is the beginning of February. And the snow had been relentless since their arrival, meaning that half of the party was forced to stay put uh, because they had wagons and horses. So there are still some living horses, apparently. Good. So the, those who had wagons and horses were forced to remain at the camp till spring. Eleven men in total were unencumbered to proceed on, and they decided to do so. Intending to travel first to the Los Pinos Indian Agency, which was the closest outpost to the camp, and then proceed onward to Breckenridge. Chief Ourry saw that there was no changing these men's minds, and gave them some food for their journey as well as directions that would bypass the mountains. Packer, however, was in favor of getting to the agency by going through the mountains, stating that it was a more direct route. Five of the 11 men were adamantly in favor of following Aurey's directions, which would largely have them traveling along the Gunnison River's banks. Packer insisted that he knew the country well and that his way was quicker, eventually securing five men to follow him. I never trust a Packer. You really have a problem with his last name, (laughs) Robin. (laughs) No, it's just fun. Oliver D. Lotzenheiser and the four other men left first following the Gunnison River. This party's original journey was besieged by bad weather and freezing temperatures. And although they followed the river, provisions ran out quickly before they reached their destination. The men were close to starvation when cowhands with the government cattle camp near Gunnison, Colorado, came upon them by chance and gave them food and shelter. They remained at the camp until later that April. So the first batch of people leaves and they follow the chief's advice, but they still don't get to where they're going because the weather is still super shitty. On February 9th, Packer and the five others in his party left for the Los Pinos Indian Agency, intending to traverse the mountains. Besides Packer, the group was made up of Shannon Wilson Bell, James Humphrey, Frank Butcher Miller, George California Noon, and Israel Swan. The men in Packer's party had a 75-mile journey ahead of them. The leader of the combined parties, Bob McGrew, guided Packer's party along the river route advised by Chief Auri until his horses could not continue, and then he turned around and went back. So the men continued to follow the river for a while before Packer took his party along a path higher up in the San Juan Mountains, disregarding Houry's ominous warning. This decision was made when the men barely had enough food to cover the supposed 14 days that it would take to travel the safest route. They possessed no snowshoes, had a bare minimum of matches and no flint. They also had no heavy clothing that would combat extreme temperatures. They went into the mountains with two rifles, one pistol, a couple of knives, a hatchet, and minimal ammunition. Packer's party is unprepared, and he is <laughs> taking them on a way that is even longer and more treacherous. That's insane. So that's kind of where we leave them, and then deadly do, deadly do, deadly do. Foreshadowing. Two months pass. Whoa. On April 16, 1874, Packer emerged from the woods alone and stumbled his way across a frozen lake bed to the Los Pinos Indian Agency near Sagawash, Colorado, with rags lashed to his feet. As the men of the agency sat around the table of the mess hall eating breakfast, the door flung open and Packer stood before them, begging for food and shelter. He carried with him a rifle, a knife, a steel coffee pot, and a satchel. The men hurried Packer inside, sat him down at the table and gave him some food, which he immediately vomited as quickly as he ate it. Packer said that his digestion was altered as a result of prolonged near starvation. After several shots of whiskey, he regaled to the men the events leading up to Alry's camp and that he had been hired by five men to guide them to Breckenridge from there. He stated that during their journey, he had become snow blind and was lagging behind the remainder of the party becoming a burden for them. There are other accounts of him going ahead as a scout and another of him having frozen feet and getting left behind. But no matter the story, the story always kind of is told that he became separated from the group for a period of time. When left alone for whatever reason, Packer was supplied with a rifle. Now alone, he was forced to survive and make his way out of the mountains with minimal ammunition and virtually no supplies. And he ate little else other than roots and rosebuds for the entire time he was alone. He always says he ate rosebuds. But I wonder when, when do you think rose bushes bud in Colorado, in the mountains? Not in winter. Probably not in feet of snow. I don't know. I, anyway. I mean, unless this is freaking Beauty and the Beast. Uh, I. <laughs> tail as old as time. I, I'm calling full bullshit because if he spent the last two months with frozen feet, his feet would be completely gone so the men of the agency listened to his story but found it rather odd that even though he had been lost in the wilderness for a little over two months he did not look malnourished and as threadbare as most wanderers they had ever come across he was looking pretty healthy like he had been eating on a regular basis it is said that his face was bloated and his overall physique was nowhere near the skeletal appearance that one would expect of someone who was living on roots and rosebuds. So he was bloated, and then he vomited everything that he ate. Packer claimed that he was broke and sold the Winchester rifle that he had in his possession to Major Downer, the agency's justice of the peace, for $10, which is equivalent to $221 now. Packer stayed at the agency for 10 days before he expressed that he wished to go back to Pennsylvania, and then he headed to the nearby town of Sagawash to buy supplies for his journey. When he reached Sagawash, Packer made arrangements to room at Dolan's Saloon. Larry Dolan, the owner, Claimed that Packer spent around $100, equivalent to about $2,200 today, during his stay. And that he even offered to lend the saloon owner money. Packer also spent $78 at the general store. So he's just, I thought he was broke. Just got a lot of money all of a sudden. It is also said that he used several different wallets. Packer drank heavily and daily, and after becoming intoxicated, he gave several different conflicting stories regarding his journey and how he had become detached from the other men. This led to quick gossip amongst the townspeople, given this ever-evolving story and the seeming endless cash flow and the fact that his party was still unheard of. It's like the Schumacher's. The Schumachers from Jerry Dancing with old couple that just stole everyone's wallets. Yes, it's similar to the shoemakers. <laughs> yeah, Schumachers. Around the same time, a member from the original group who had stayed behind at the at the camp showed up in town. This man is named Preston Nutter. Because I immediately think he looks like Mr. Peanut. I oh, is that where their inspiration came from? The story? I don't know. Is does it a it, monocle and a top hat? I just don't you think he does? His name's Preston Nutter. And I, I just know. want to know what happened to Israel Swan. You, you will find out. So he runs into Packer at the saloon where he is drinking and carrying on. So this guy Nutter is like, uh, hey, where's everyone else at? And Packer is like, well, you know, my feet got wet and frozen and they just like ditched me. He stated that he had set up camp, that his feet got frozen and that they set up camp When a winter storm set in and that he started a fire to warm up when the others went ahead to look for food. Packer claimed that Swan left him with his rifle just in case there was any trouble and that none of the other men ever returned. So being an all around awesome dude that he is, you know, he just presumed that they abandoned him because that's, of course, exactly what you would think. If you had frozen feet, they would just be like, oh, here's a rifle. We're just going to ditch you. (laughs) He claimed that he was forced to leave the party to their unknown fate and that he had no idea where they were, that he had no idea where they went when they left him. And he had been living mainly on rosebuds and the occasional squirrel that he was able to find on his truck. I also read there's a lot of talk about eating rabbit. So it was basically whatever they could find. Nutter thought this story odd, considering that Packer looked rather well fed. And that it would have been potentially fatal choice for five miners unfamiliar with Colorado to abandon their so-called guide in the snowbound mountains of the territory that he claimed to know so well. He also found it hard to believe that the men would just simply abandon him. Nutter also thought it peculiar that Israel Swan, who would simply just give Packer his rifle and wish him well before pressing on with the other four men, And that would leave only one rifle amongst the four men as a way to actually get food. So uh, another thing that Nutter notices is that Packer doesn't have his revolver with him anymore. He only has the rifle. And also, if Packer is flat broke, where's all this drinking money coming from? Nutter also noted that Packer was in possession of a skinning knife that belonged to Frank Butcher Miller. Nutter asked Packer where, how he came to have it, with Packer stating that Miller had stuck it in a tree and walked off without it. Having had doubts about Packer's story from the beginning, Nutter was all but convinced that something nefarious had happened. In addition to his suspicions, Nutter had come to view Packer with the same negative light that Lautzenheiser based on his performance and overall character leading up to the arrival at Aureus Camp. This, uh, you know, Nutter's like, this guy's a fucking liar and I'm not into it. Yep. Where are my friends? Accusations were flung and words were exchanged with Nutter threatening to hang Packer. Nutter later stated regarding Packer, he was sulky and obstinate and quarrelsome. He was a petty thief willing to take things that did not belong to him, whether they were of any value or not. The two men were physically separated and Packer just went ahead with his plans to move back to Pennsylvania. Meanwhile, back at the Los Pinos Indian Agency, two men of the five-man party that had taken the Gunnison River route before being rescued by the cowhands, like, you know, the other group, Mm -hmm. So as the other group gets to the Los Pinos Indian Agency, finally, the general that's there, General Charles Adams, greets them and says, hey, you know, there was somebody else that was just here from your party. And they give it the name Alfred Packer, and that he spoke of how he had been deserted at the hands of his companions. All five men at once discredited that Packer had told the general and his staff, stating that the men that he had been with would never have abandoned him to die. Lotsenheiser flatly told the general that Packer was not to be trusted and that he was sure that something bad had happened in the mountains. He noted that the Winchester rifle carried in by Packer belonged to an elderly man in the Packer party and that a pipe had been left behind at the agency, which belonged to a man named Shannon Bell, who was also a member of the party. Mm-hmm. The men convinced General Adams to dispatch a mounted agent to go to Sagawash and retrieve Packer for questioning. At this point, Packer's in the process of totally like jetting out. He's like ready to get hightail it to Pennsylvania when he is again approached by Netter and some other men. The agency officer arrives just in time to get between them. And at this point, he's like, Hey, Packer, you gotta come back to the Los Pinos Indian Agency. We need everyone to get together to form a search party for your other friends. Okay. So like it wasn't really an attempt to so go kind after of him. They're kind well, of like- they they're they're, yeah. like, sketched out by him, mm-hmm. but they want to get him back there. Because he's a pathological liar, and who knows what he would come up with. So you kind of have to trick him into right. helping. And put him in a position where he has no choice but mm-hmm. to help. Upon arriving at the agency, Packer came face-to-face with General Adams and with five men who he had not seen since February when they had left Chief Houry's camp. So essentially he's presented with all the evidence, being like, hey— You've been seen spending a lot of money and you're supposed to be broke. A lot of money. You've you, had a lot of people's possessions. You to loan money to people. Right. You've had a lot of people's possessions. like, And he just keeps telling the same story, how he was abandoned and how he ended up with these people's things like one at a time. Hey, and Parker, that's kind of the story that he says. How's your feet? Well, I mean, I'm sure they weren't in great shape. He, they didn't have any shoes. Because later I'll tell you the story about what happens to their shoes. So, <laughs> They eat them too? They did. They ate their shoes. They boiled and ate their shoes. Yeah, that's what you do. The other thing that Packer says is like, oh, I got all my money from someone in Sagawash, like lent it to me. And they're like, "Okay, great. So just tell us who lent you the money and we'll just go confirm that. And if that's the case, then we're all good. Well, especially since like immediately he's like, I'm broke. So I need to sell this Winchester. Now all of a sudden he's like, oh, well, I have this money because someone loaned it to me. Well, who? Oh, well, you know, part of the party, you know, like now it's just he's mixing up all of his lies and he can't keep track. Exactly. Exactly. So an officer, an officer was dispatched at once and after a short while returned with the news from various sources that Packer had been seen with several different wallets and had told varying stories regarding his journey. He had arrived in Sagawash, though, with plenty of cash and no one in town had loaned him a penny. Adams convened a council of the five men, himself, Packer, and the agency officers to settle the matter. As they began the proceedings, two Ute tribesmen rushed into the agency, holding strips of dried human flesh that they referred to as white man's meat, which they had found upon a hill near the agency while hunting. Is it two months old? Can they tell how long it's been? (laughs) I don't know. know. Because it's like... I mean, the weather's sketchy. I mean, I also don't think that they're like going to forensically test it. At the sight of the meat, Packer reportedly fainted and crumbled on the floor and then profusely began begging for mercy, swearing to make a full confession. After a long silence, he cryptically stated to Adams, it would not be the first time that people had been obliged to eat each other when they were hungry. Packer slowly and sobbingly began to tell. What was to become one of several different official statements that he would give over three decades? Whoa. Herman Lauder, the agency clerk, was in attendance and transcribed Packer's first official statement. Packer claimed that the men had left Aury's camp with what they thought was a sufficient supply of food for the anticipated 14-day journey ahead of them. Before they knew it, provisions were exhausted due to the rough terrain and the expenditure of energy needed to traverse the difficult mountains. They survived for days on roots dug from the ground, pine gum, rosebuds, and the occasional rabbit. After a few days of no wildlife activity due to extreme cold and eating virtually nothing but roots, he claimed that the men started to eye each other in an unsettling way, their stomachs twisting with hunger. A few days after this, he left the camp to gather some dry firewood and returned to find four men around the slain body of Israel Swan. Oh, Swan, who had been struck in the head with a hatchet and killed instantly. The four started to butcher Swan, with Packer accepting the situation and joining in. He claimed several thousand dollars was found on Swan's person and that they divided it equally amongst them. They consumed the most agreeable parts of Swan's body, packed some up, and moved on with Packer appropriating Swan's rifle. That's how he got the rifle. Mm -hmm. Within two days, however, the five men were again out of meat, and Game continued to elude them. Packer, Bell, Humphrey, and Noon decided in secret that Miller would be the next to go. Packer confessed that Miller was a stocky man and was chosen for the amount of soft flesh that he had upon him. Oh, I'm screwed. They're coming right for us. Oh, my God. He was killed with a hatchet blow to the head while he was stooping down to pick up wood for the fire. Then he was butchered and consumed. Packer took Miller's knife, having admired it, and Miller's share of Swan's money— Was redistributed among the four men who then moved on to Los Pinos. I was a gun and a knife. The winter was relentless and the men were slow moving, barely able to see in front of them, cursing the wind that was cutting into their exposed skin. Humphrey was next to be sacrificed, followed before too long by noon. At last, it was just down to Bell and Packer. He claimed that the two men swore to Almighty God not to eat each other, they each had a rifle apiece at this point and a couple of thousand dollars of swan's cash and presumed that two men would fare well on the remainder of the trip with what minimal game there was to be found. They agreed that they would say the four men had perished due to the elements and were buried with dignity, vowing to never speak of the cannibalism. They felt no one would ever believe that it was necessary. After trekking for a few days with little else eaten other than rabbit and some roots, The men were exhausted and set up camp next to a large lake. Packer said that a few days after this, Bell snapped out of his blanket and screamed that he could not take it anymore. He told Packer that one of them was going to have to die for food. He snatched his rifle and sprinted at Packer with it ready to bash his skull in. Packer deflected the blow and cleaved Bell in the head with the hatchet. He claimed that at this point, the only fear he had was that he would starve to death. He then butchered Bell, eating as much as he could in preparation for the remaining leg of the journey, and he packed a good amount away. He relieved Bell of his share of Swan's cash, so now he has all the money, and unsure of how far he was from anywhere or if he was even going to survive. After a while, he mounted a hill and saw at last the Los Pinos Indian Agency. It's like like the first Hunger Games. <laughs> Pretty much. He threw the remaining strips of bell's flash away presuming that any animal would hastily eat them up and admitted that he did so with a fair degree of hesitation he confessed that he had grown quite fond of human flesh and that found the portion around the breast to be especially delicious ah oh, fuck lotzenheiser <laughs> erupted with anger but general adams exerted his authority and called for a consultation between the five men and the agency officers to determine the next course of action It was decided that a search party would be assembled to go and find the men's remains. The five Utah men claimed that they did not believe one part of Packer's story and that Bell was the sort of man that would have laid down his life for another if needed. General Adams asked the two Ute men if they knew of an area next to a lake that Packer had described. They said that such a place existed roughly 50 miles across the hills. The search party was headed by agency clerk Herman Lauder and consisted of five miners from Utah, a few agency members, and Packer acting as a guide. Oh, no. (laughs) Right? That's that's how it all started. I know. They learned nothing. After two weeks, as the party was reaching the area of Lake Fork of the Gunnison River, Packer claimed that he was lost and that the area did not look great. Lotzenheiser called Packer a liar and a murderer and insisted that he be hung then and there. "'Nothing was found, and the party headed back to the agency. "'Along their way back, Packer attempted to murder Herman Lauder "'with a large knife that he had concealed inside his clothing. "'He was caught in the act, restrained, and arrested. "'General Adams had been willing to believe Packer up to this point, "'but the unprovoked attack on the officer's life "'convinced him that Packer was dangerous.' He was transported to Sagawash and jailed by the chief outside of the town itself for his own protection. During Packer's detention, he retracted what he had told the men in the agency about the events leading up to the five men losing their lives. He now claimed that the men had encountered a strong blizzard along their way through the mountains. The snow fell so heavily and persistently that they became hopelessly lost and were unable to retrace their steps back to their starting point. Provisions were already minimal when they began the trek and quickly ran out. They just as quickly ran out of matches. And were forced to carry hot embers in a steel coffee pot to have a means uh have the means to light a fire Is that what he did? Is that why he had the coffee pot with him? Yeah, I mean, they would carry the embers from their fire, mm-hmm. so they would have be able to make a fire at the next yeah. place also is this why I'm going back and like to your story on how when he first arrived at the camp and he vomited up all the food is because it wasn't flesh, maybe, maybe. I don't really know. But. Like, ima- like I'm imagining, like... I know. Your body gets used to, like... Yeah. It's like if you and don't it's... eat meat for, like, 15 years and then suddenly you eat meat, you feel like eat... shit. hmm Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you spent two months just, like, eating folks. Yep. Days went on with no signs of game, and attempts at ice fishing proved utterly futile. After roasting and eating their shoes and attempting to survive on what scant and edible vegetation they could find, it was Packer's claim that the men entered into a pact, wherein if one died, their meat would serve to save the others from starvation. After days of hiking with virtually nothing to eat, Israel Swan could go on no longer. They found a pine-shaded gulch next to a lake and set up camp. A short time after this, Packer claimed that Swan died of a combination of hunger and exposure. And this is a quote from Packer's uh, First Confession. Old Man Swan died first and was eaten by the other five persons and 10 out of camp. Four or five days afterwards, Humphreys died and was also eaten. He also had about $133 on him. I found the pocketbook and took the money. Sometime afterwards, while I was carrying wood, the butcher was killed. As the other two told me, accidentally. And he was also eaten. Bell shot California with Swan's gun and I killed Bell. Shot him. I covered up the remains and took a large piece along, then traveled 14 days into the agency. Bell wanted to kill me with his rifle. Struck a tree and broke his gun instead. So he just kept... Exact opposite of what he said. He changes this story constantly now people died of of natural causes and starvation mm-hmm. instead of oh this now other people are murdering the head yeah um the guy bent down to get firewood and he was knocked out yeah. like and now it's like oh well he died while i was getting wood no in packer yeah so it's like it's constantly evolving in packer's later amended version of the story the men had endured almost 20 days from Albury's camp and more than 10 without any substantial food at all. Packer elaborated that James Humphrey had also died of exposure to the extreme cold and that George Noon was killed days later by Shannon Bell for the sole purpose of food, after there was no substantial meat to be had from the three fallen men. Then it was just down to Bell and himself. He claimed that he and Bell had agreed that they would stand together until the end, swearing not to eat each other. Days went by. Bell could no longer take the hunger and rushed at Packer with Swan's rifle, intending to bludgeon him with its stock. Packer then shot Bell with his pistol. Packer confessed to taking the valuables of the deceased members, claiming that they no longer needed them, but made no statements as to the exact items taken nor the amount of money accrued. So it's kind of just this constant... Like, I think I think maybe his like the first story you said was closest to the truth. Yeah. And then he was just like, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have said that. So now he's just kind of making things up to kind of throw off everything. I think a lot of it, there's, I think there's a bit of truth in each of the stories. And I don't think any of the stories are really the truth. The first one seems like this person killed this person. This one was the weakest link. This one was the weakest link. And it was like survival of the fittest in a way. You I know? just like – But then these, also – These people can't go two days without eating. I know. I know. It's like why are you on this track? <laughs> like what do you think you're going to have? Like a home-cooked meal every day? I know. Like you're going to have a big pot of stew yeah. and beans by the fire every night? It's like – what what did you think this was about? Like you're trekking through like the blizzard mountains in Colorado, mm-hmm. with no so sh- with no snowshoes or anything like that. Right, they don't have proper gear. It's no. like, they, I bet the chief was just like, "Jesus, you idiots!" Yeah, I bet he totally was just like, "Whatever." Just go. These guys are just gonna die. Fast forward a couple more months, and now it's August. So the following August. The site of the incident was happened upon by James A. Randolph, an illustrator who worked for Harper's Weekly Magazine. He discovered all five of the bodies at the foot of the Slum Gullion Pass. One location. Two miles east of Lake City, Colorado, in a pine-shaded gulch skirted by hemlock trees. They They lay above the Lake Fork of the Gunnison River, also known colloquially now as Dead Man's Gulch. Which matched the description of where Packer had originally claimed that only Bell had met his end. The men had been well within hiking distance of the nearby city had they descended the Lake Fork down as opposed to going up, especially in their alleged desperate situation. But Packer was the guide. The snow had been covering the bodies and the campsite, but it had melted over the four months that had elapsed. Randolph sketched the scene as he had found it and then alerted authorities in nearby Lake City. The story was covered two months later in the October 17, 1874 edition of Harper's Weekly and included his illustration of the site. The local coroner and law enforcement set out to the site along with about 20 volunteers and discovered the bodies of all five men in various states of decomposition, having been left to the elements and animals for four months. First responders to the site noted that it appeared to be that of extreme violence that had befallen the men and that there was a putrid smell of death. Frank Miller's head was missing entirely from the campsite. Whoa. His and Israel swan's corpses had been considerably worked upon by scavengers, and little more was left than scattered bones. Israel's skull had a jagged chunk missing out of it, and it was presumed that Miller's head was carried away by an animal. Okay. So, you know, as bodies decompose, the joints um, lose their collagen and their... Easily, dry. yeah. I mean, especially after May, June, July, and August, yes. you have all those buns. Yeah, and like basically defrost at that point. Yeah, so they've been frozen. Now they're defrosted. Yeah, now the animals are eating them. And then, and well, to the animals, it's fresh meat. Well, yeah. I mean, it's been frozen. Yeah. The bodies of George Noon and James Humphrey were largely flayed torsos of rotting viscera, attached to skeletal legs, but with intact and bearded faces. Humphrey's face was noted to be slightly more decayed than Noon's. They had received blows to the head the shape indicating, perhaps, a hatchet. Shannon Bell lay with largely skeletal legs splayed and arms to his sides that were crudely cut to their bones, leading to hands that were still fully skinned. His remaining corpse was a putrid mass of viscera encased in an almost wholly flayed torso, which led to an almost still living face, complete with thick red beard and bushy hair. The lack of noticeable decay in his face suggested that he had been the last to die. The top of Bell's skull had been ripped open and his brains were laying on the ground beneath him. The three men, whose bodies were still intact or partly intact, had had the flesh and muscle excised from choice and meaty locations. No attempt had been made to consume bone marrow or any organs at all. So they essentially only ate like the best parts and then went for more.
1: Rather than using the whole... Right.
0: Right. So, so it's like, "Oh, I'm going to take the thigh and the breast cuz he loved the breast." Yes. The thigh, breast, and whatever it was, and like, you know what? I'm done. I'll leave you for scraps. Yeah. This totally contradicts Packer's Everything. version of events. Everything. So, they were all together in one spot. They are not scattered across miles. Both Humphrey and Noon had had large portions of flesh, muscle, and organs, etc., had been consumed. It's like it It before. sounds like they they treated it as like a gourmet meal. Instead of a fit for survival? Yeah. I, I I don't think that Packer did it all on his own. No. doesn't sound like it. Right? So the men had tattered cloth slashed to their rotting feet, which had replaced the shoes that they had eaten in their desperation. Mm-hmm. So that lines up. A beaten path went from the resting place of the corpses to a crude shelter that was used by Packer. And there was evidence to suggest that the deaths might possibly have occurred before the supplies were totally exhausted. So they ate the flesh before their supplies were... They expected. just didn't want to eat the vegetables. How many times do people have to tell you to eat your goddamn vegetables? Eat your vegetables. So just eat another pot of beans, people. Within the shelter were possessions belonging to the men that Packer had left behind. The theory was that Packer had killed the men before the supplies ran out to rob them of their possessions, got snowed in, and then lived in his makeshift shelter for months while eating all of the... Supplies. Walking to the slain companions and then slicing meat off as Jesus. needed. But but the decay was slow, like each Except one, for that last guy. The last guy looked He was the fresh. most... Yeah. Right. So that doesn't necessarily track perfectly Mm-mm. either. Nope. So Preston Nutter accompanied the... <laughs> back to Mr. Peanut. So Mr. Peanut accompanied the party to the site and identified the bodies as belonging to the five missing men. A rifle broken in two was found close to the bodies. Due to the damage apparent on the remains, it was presumed that it was used to bludgeon one or more of them. Their remains were buried at the site by officials, and the search party returned to Packer's makeshift jail to confront him, only to find him missing. It's like, all right, so now what? (laughs) Did, is someone in on it? Did someone release him? Yes. So. Ooh, I was right. You're right. I mean, at this point, this is a fucking movie. A few movies have been made about this, but yes. So the jail at the time was little more than a log cabin located on a ranch belonging to the Sagawash County Sheriff. At this point, months had passed with no definitive evidence of a crime being committed. No bodies had yet been discovered and no formal charges had been lodged against Packer. Sagawash County authorities were reportedly not happy about taxpayer dollars being spent so exorbitantly on keeping Packer housed and under a 24-hour guard. He was allegedly passed a makeshift key for his irons and given some supplies and easily escaped. Even so, nearly the entirety of Sagawash was convinced, either through rumor or rational deduction, that Packer was guilty of either robbery or murder, or both. His life was threatened constantly by the nearby townspeople. Packer never divulged who helped him escape, how this was achieved, or why. It was presumed that his guard had been bribed by Packer himself or by somebody else. you a lot of money. The generally accepted theory at the time was that Packer had attached himself to the party under highly overstated qualifications of being a mountain guide familiar with the area in order to accompany the men to Breckenridge and had at best led his party to miserable deaths due to gross incompetence. This was enough of a crime in and of itself as as far as the local population was concerned. However, an ultimately more popular theory was set about that he had gotten these five men together from Alry's camp with a premeditated plan to lead them into the wilderness where he would kill them and rob them. Oh, so you think they were individually chosen? One by one, be like yes, the people with the best stuff. Yes, Humphrey. Yes, Swan. Yes, Bell. See, I don't think so because he had a hard enough time convincing those five because people were already kind of over his ass when they were at Auri's camp. I think his whole idea was like, I'm going to take as many people as I can and try to steal everything from them before. Oh, so the five are just like we want to get that out of here. Yeah. So while that theory is all fine and good, he had never really been a thief or a criminal in his past that we know of. Right. But he had he had constantly moved around and he had been in a ton of different jobs, but it just isn't something that he was known for. So it's like. Well, unfortunately, he didn't keep a lot of jobs because of his condition. Right. So he just kind of maybe was a thief and that's how he survived and lived. But that's a maybe. In this, what is this, uh, 1874 Yeah. And he was born in 42. So he's in his 30s now. Yeah. Not married. But never accused of any of those he things. He was never. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, like it's he always 15 like fifteen years on the streets, basically. But it's always like, oh, like you know, he is just disagreeable or he's lazy. But it's never that he's a thief. But it sounds like he's pretty damn smart. You know what I mean? He might. He might. I don't be know like, that I give him that much credit. I don't know that I give him that much credit. I, don't I think know. That I feel that this There's, was all a plan. He's like, I'm gonna take these five and I'm gonna do this. And his name is spelled wrong on his body. I just don't give him that much credit. I don't know. <sighs> I don't know. I mean. So it's like they're turning him into an arch villain. They but are. I'm not sure that he's smart enough and to be an arch villain. He's just definitely a pathological liar. Absolutely, one hundred percent. He's also a survivalist, but I think he's also he, a pathological liar because he's never accepted. I want to be a part of this thing. Yeah, and then what? One. One taste of flesh. He's like, now I love this. Now I'm addicted. Let me murder all of these people. I think that there's more to it than that. I think that like his first story is probably closer to the truth. Yeah. And the timeline of the bodies and the decomposition yeah. of the bodies lines up with that. Yes. And that, yes, he took the valuable things one at a time. They all did. They split it up. And they all did. And then did. Split it up and go. That's my personal theory. It, me too. But his first initial after – after he passed out mm-hmm. and woke up and was like, I need to confess. I think that he full heartedly expressed everything that happened. That was the and truest. The truest. And then after that, he was kind of like, oh, shit, am I in trouble? Maybe I have to change my story. Yeah. And then they're like, to oh, oh we're going to go find them. And then he guided them. Yeah. So, of course, he didn't find them. No. he knew where they were. But it was just like, it was probably too much to answer for. Especially mm-hmm. if there were still supplies. Mm-hmm. And when they saw how close he was to an actual city. And if he's supposed to be the guide and you, you were that known. close to a city, you should have known. You should have known. You had 14 days basically of like extra supplies on, on hand. But you choose to kill a friend and just eat certain parts. Yeah, You know, there's something about this story that's making me feel a little uneasy tonight because we did just eat filet mignon. I mean, that's why anyway. I said filet. It was so soft. <laughs> anyway. Oh, Lord. Anyway, so – that's this, like, new theory that he—this was all premeditated and that he mm. led them into the into the wilderness so he could kill them. Nutter and Lautzenheiser made it a personal mission to discredit Packer's alleged qualifications as far as being a guide, let alone a mountain guide, and pointed to all of his character flaws that they had come to know and stressed his numerous different stories and inconsistencies. Local papers picked up the story, and the incident received constant coverage with highly sensational headlines— many negative comments regarding Packer's character, and highly imagined theories that grabbed both national and international attention. Regardless as to how it may have happened, nearly the entire population of Sagawash, and soon nearly the entire country, found that Packer's culpability for the party's deaths was beyond doubt. The cannibalism aspect of his charges, although shocking, was not necessarily the foremost issue of his guilt. People at the time were well acquainted with the story of the ill-fated Donner Party, who had resorted to cannibalism during the winter of 1846 and 1847, and were understanding to a degree of the need to eat in an unforgiving wilderness. Additionally, cannibalism was not, then or now, illegal per se in the United States unless one commits murder in order to obtain the flesh that is being consumed. Even in such a case, the accused is charged with murder, with the cannibalism itself being charged as a desecration or abuse of the corpse. Yeah. Packerwood claimed for the remainder of his life that he had been unjustly vilified and convicted for engaging in cannibalism rather than for cold blooded murder, which he continued to deny ever having committed. In the end, it came down to a question Did five men die due to incompetence or greed? At this or point, gluttony. Right. So. At this point, Packer is missing, and eventually, on March 11th, 1883, Packer is discovered in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where he is living as John Schwartz. And it was there in Wyoming that one of the original members of the Utah Mining Party, who stayed in Chief Owry's camp in winter of 1874... That's a hike. Colorado Wyoming? Is it? So Colorado and Wyoming are... Touching states right on top of each other. They are touching states. But Colorado and Wyoming are so big. And in case you like, were wondering, it's like three states. We are not great at American geography, especially in the middle. I used to be, but it's late and I had some wine. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day free trial membership. So go to slash notorious narratives. To browse Audible's unmatched selections, such as Alice Hoffman's Museum of Extraordinary Things, a book that fuses fiction and history, set in Coney Island with a mystery surrounding the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. It's right at my alley, so go to audibletrialcom notorious narratives to get a free title today. It's that simple. So this gentleman. Jean Frenchy Cabazon was himself a member of the original party who had left Provo and wisely decided to stay put at Outry's camp, later safely making his way to the destination with Bob McGrew and Preston Nutter's party. He encountered Packer by chance when Packer approached him looking to buy some supplies. Cabazon reported Packer to the local sheriff, who apprehended him and contacted General Adams. He was summoned to Cheyenne, where he confirmed Packer's identity, and accompanied him on a train to Denver for his second confession, which Packer signed on March 16th. Packer stated that his main reason for fleeing was out of fear of mob justice being exacted upon him by the population of Sagawash. Because the actual crime was committed within the confines of Hinsdale County rather than neighboring Sagalash County, Pecker was accordingly sent to Lake City for detention and prosecution. So, actually, where he was being jailed before wasn't even where he would have stood trial. All right, so now they've got him back and he is confessing again. <laughs> this time, can't wait to hear what he said. You now. <laughs> Packer Cronell claimed that Bell had killed the others after Bell had told him to go scouting for any way out of the mountains and to find some food. He had been gone the better part of a day when he returned late in the evening. Um, and Packer told General Adams, this is a quote, I found the redheaded man who acted crazy in the morning sitting near a fire roasting a piece of meat that he had cut out of one of the legs of the German butcher. The latter's body was lying the furthermost off from the fire and the steam. His skull was crushed in with a hatchet. The other three were lying near the fire. They were cut in the forehead with the hatchet. Some had two or three cuts. I came within a rod of the fire when the man saw me. He got up with his hatchet towards me and I shot him sideways through the belly. He fell on his face. The hatchet fell forwards. I grabbed it and hit him on top of the head with it. So yet another story. This one also can't track because once again, they died at different times. That was confirmed. So, why is he like like slicing things in foreheads around a campfire? So basically, what he's saying in this one is that the redheaded guy Bell is like, "Hey, you need to go try to find a way out and look for food." And then when he comes back, he's killed all four of the men, and they're laying around all with various states of being hit in the head with his hatchet, just mm-hmm. hit in the head with the hatchet, and then. Basically, the guy comes at him, he shoots him with the pistol, Drops and then he gets the hatchet, and then he hits him with the hatchet. That's, the way it sounded like well, he was just like carving people around a campfire. I'm like, what? now what are you doing? He was roasting a person. And he says that in the ensuing moments after shooting Bill that Packer dropped the revolver in the snow and subsequently lost it. He claimed that he made himself a crude shelter out of stray logs to combat the snow and the wind some distance away from the bodies. Another strong storm set in and he hunkered down for hours. He was starving and made the decision to eat something or die. I went, this is another quote. I went back to the fire, covered the men up and fetched to the camp a piece of meat that was near the fire. I made a new fire near my camp and cooked the piece of meat and ate it. I tried to get away every day, but could not. And so I lived on the flesh of these men for the better part of 60 days. Adams asked Packer why he had not told him this story nine years previous. With Packer replying, I was excited. I wanted to say something. And this story, as I told it, was the first thing that came to my mind. You're excited? (laughs) This guy. He just can't stop lying. So, at the time of Packer's trial, it was reported that the family of Israel Swan, that he had gone on the expedition with around $6,000. Which is the equivalent to $132,000 today. On April 6th, the trial began in Lake City. Packer pleaded not guilty. After seven days of testimonies and examinations, he was found guilty of premeditated murder of Israel Swan and sentenced to death by hanging, which was scheduled for May 19th, 1883. It was presumed that Swan's death had occurred on or around the 1st of March. It was determined by the prosecution in court that Swan's remains showed signs of a struggle at the time of his death and that the others appeared to have been killed in their sleep. Among those who testified on behalf of the prosecution were Otto Mayers, Larry Dolan, Oliver Lotzenheiser, and Preston Nutter, who acted as the prosecution's key witnesses. So he was convicted and sentenced to death. But in the end, Packer was spared the death penalty. In October 1885, the sentence was reversed by the Colorado Supreme Court and was based on an ex post facto law. They had declared that the government could not sentence a man to death for committing a crime if he had indeed occurred uh, before Colorado became a state. Oh, it wasn't a state yet because it was combined with... Oh. So, the the overturning of his murder charge and scheduled execution did not spare Packer culpability for the man's death, however. A second trial was held in Gunnison. He again pleaded not guilty. After a swift trial and even speedier verdict deliberation, on June 8, 1886, Packer was convicted of five counts of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 40 years in prison, eight years for each count. At the time, this was the longest custodial sentence in U.S. history. At the time of the second hearing, local hunters officially made statements that although the winter of 1874 was one of the worst that they had ever encountered for quite some time, the area of the San Juan Mountains where Packer and his party were camped, there was still plenty active with such large wild game as deer and antelope, as well as smaller game. There was even a report that a carcass of a deer was found near the campsite. This significantly damaged Packer's claims that the area was so scant with wildlife that the men had to resort to cannibalism quickly. Further emphasis was placed on the fact that Packer's choice to hike through the San Juan Mountains during the middle of winter where snow depths can exceed more than six feet in a single single downfall, coupled with blistering winds and freezing temperatures, was practically suicidal. Packer took the stand in his own defense. His version of events that took place at the campsite remained relatively the same to his second official version. He made a request that he be charged the 40 years, but only for the death of Shannon Bell, who was the only man that Packer continued to claim that he had killed, with the other deaths being beyond his control. His request was denied, and he was sent to serve a sentence in the Cannon City Penitentiary. Over the years, Packer applied for many appeals, and was denied on every submission. He sent letters to newspapers uh, claiming that he was unjustly convicted by an unfair and unsympathetic judicial system. On June 19th, 1899, Packer's sentence was officially upheld by the Colorado Supreme Court. Nonetheless, he was paroled on February 8th, 1901. Packer had served 18 of his 48-year sentence. 1901, you said? Mm Mm-hmm. After his parole, Packer went to work as a guard at the Denver Post and later as a ranch hand. His employment at the Denver Post came about, many believe, as a result of the fact of one reporter who was kind of obsessed with writing about him and kind of helped him get out of prison. Alfred Packer died on April 23, 1907, at the age of 65, in Deer Creek, Jefferson County, Colorado. The cause of his death was cited as dementia, trouble, and worry. Although his clinical cause of death is described as the result of a stroke. Packer is rumored to have been a vegetarian before his death. <laughs> <laughs> he was reported by those who knew him as a man rich with stories and well-liked by children. He lived modestly and was known to be a charitable man. So apparently like kids really liked him. He would like tell them stories. He always had candy for them. He was like kind of a goodly old dude. So another fun Little fact. Um, (laughs) Packer was interred in Littleton, Colorado with full military burial. His grave was marked with a veteran's headstone listing his original regiment in 1862. The gravestone that's there now. Yeah. The gravestone that's there now is a replacement as the original grave marker was stolen. His first name is listed as Alfred on his headstone and as opposed to the actual spelling of Alfred. So there's even in his death, there is still confusion about what his name was. So the Littleton Cemetery Association cemented over Packer's grave in 1973 to deter grave robbing and vandalism. Despite their belief that his corpse was intact, claims have been made by Edward Meyer, the vice president of the exhibits and archives for Ripley's Believe It or Not, that they are in possession of Packer's dissected skull, which they bought from an anonymous party for a reported sum of $20,000. And it is said to be on display. In New Orleans. Really? And now it's, now it is in San Antonio after Hurricane Katrina. Katrina. And so in 1989, they actually went back to the area to try to find the corpses. Because you remember, they yeah, just yeah. buried them at the site. And they were able to find them. And they did have signs of traumatic injuries. But there was no specific, uh, you know, actual of death. proof of, well, there was no proof of, Cannibalism, because oh, wow. the person who went there, James E. Stars, who is professor of law specializing in forensic science at George Washington University, the only way that you could ever prove cannibalism per se is the ingestion of human flesh. So you basically have to have a picture of a guy sitting there eating a person, or the stomach contents after uh, after passing. Exactly. Right? So. so if you see flesh removed from a body out in the wilderness, you immediately think it's animals, right? Yeah. So unless he died, and they, dissect, and they did an autopsy and dissected his stomach, and so remnants of human flesh, that's when you can... Oh, fuck. That is the story of the Colorado Gold Rush and Alfred Packer, a greedy man who bit off more than he could chew. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash Notorious Narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.